So if you have your Bibles with you, uh, turn to chapter 18. Last week, thanks to Dr. Russ, who shared. The week before that was Scott, our youth leader, also one of our elders, shared uh, the Wednesday before. Those will all be uploaded in the next day or two. I, I have everything now to, to kind of get them all back online and on schedule. So if you're looking to catch uh, Pastor Thomas Powell, or uh, if you weren't here this past Sunday, we were in, uh, we did a topical message from uh, Philippians chapter 4 and Proverbs 16. How many of you have been implementing Philippians 4 daily? You know, just kind of uh, reminding yourself to rejoice and uh, to be gentle. You know, you don't, you don't realize how not gentle you are until you start working on being gentle. Then you realize, wow, I was pretty harsh here, there, everywhere, right? So, uh, We've been doing a lot of talking about in our house with our girls, and uh, it's, been, it's been fun to kind of just have the Holy Spirit remind us how important those things are, and I believe we'll see great victories. Uh, so back in, uh, back in Ezekiel tonight, uh, there's a lot to read. I'm not going to read every one of these verses. As I said, we're going to kind of try and catch the spirit of each section. Uh, matter of fact, I'm gonna, in some place, I'll be two or three chapters at a time. But tonight, just the 18th chapter, starting with verse 1. And we'll read, uh, again, portions of this. Follow along with me. Verse 1, the word of the Lord came to me again, saying, What do you mean when you use this proverb concerning the land of Israel, saying, The fathers have eaten sour grapes, the children's teeth are set on edge. As I live, says the Lord God, you shall Lord, we just ask again that you would speak to each and every one of us. Lord, we know that your word has already spoken. We now ask that you would illuminate by your spirit that which you desired us to know. Perhaps we've heard these things before, but that they would go deeper and have just a greater work and how we reach out to a lost and dying world and how we also understand, Lord, that uh, you're not willing at, at any rate that anyone should perish, that your love and your compassion, your grace are so evident. And Lord, we just uh, ask your blessing upon this time and your word. In your name we pray. Amen. A number of years ago, there appeared in the New Yorker magazine an account of a Long Island resident who ordered an extremely sensitive barometer from a respected company, Abercrombie and Fitch. Now, not, not the clothing store at Short Pump Town Center, but this is way back when. And when the instrument arrived at his home, he was disappointed to uh, discover that the indicating needle appeared to be stuck pointing to the sector marked hurricane. After shaking the barometer vigor vigorously several times, never a good idea with a sensitive mechanism, and never getting the point to move, the new owner wrote a scathing letter to the store, and on the following morning, on his way to the office in New York City, he mailed it. That evening, he returned to Long Island to find not only that the barometer was missing, but his house as well. The needle of the instrument had been pointed correctly. The month was September, and the year was 1938. The day was the terrible hurricane that nearly leveled Long Island. You know, people will hear something from the Scriptures, from the Lord, and they'll assume, I don't think this makes any sense, or I don't agree with the reading, the reading of the Word, what I've heard, but we do that to our own ruin. 
rather than take the heed. God sends people truth in many ways, doesn't he? I mean, people around the world, uh, God is reaching out uh, all over the planet. And now Israel, on the other hand, uh, they had more than enough. You talk about having a, a barometer, they would have had many barometers, all reading the same thing. Many prophets coming to them. They had all the scriptures. Remember, they were God's chosen people. They had all the evidence that if they did not turn, their ruin would be upon them. And the Lord is telling us here in this 18th chapter uh, a number of things. We're going to look at uh, them one by one. I'm not going to go through uh, and give you the bullet points until we come to them, because I've got like four or five of them that we'll go through. But we do want to look at what is it that the Lord is saying. He's saying a number of things here uh, that are both warning, but God's warning is always a good thing, isn't it? It keeps us from having our house blown over, uh, having um, our souls uh, destroyed. And he talks about each of these things uh, in our text tonight. If you're taking notes, I've titled our time in the Word tonight, Every Person Will Choose. Every Person Will We'll choose, and we'll look first at uh, verses 1 through 20. We're not going to look at all 20 verses, but uh, they're kind of in one section here uh, covering what I've titled personal responsibility. Personal responsibility. It's been well said that God has no grandchildren, right? You guys have probably heard that before. Each person individually makes a decision. You can't make a decision for your kids to come to Christ. You can't make a decision for your grandkids to come to Christ. Each person has to decide for themselves, will they hear the voice of the Lord and respond in obedience or not? And so the Lord comes to him and says, uh, to, says to Ezekiel, well, what do you mean? Of course, Ezekiel's not the one walking around saying this, but he speaking to him as a representative of his own people. Uh, one of the things, that, it's a good kind of thing for us to remember, too, uh, when we pray, when we pray for America, uh, we include ourselves in the wickedness that is seen in our nation. Even if we're not participating in it, we're praying as representatives uh, for the people. But the Lord comes to him and says, what is this uh, proverb concerning the land of Israel? The fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. Now, of course, the Lord knows what it means. Uh, it's interesting that, uh, you know, even today, uh, as I mentioned uh, when we started, today is Earth Day. Now, I don't celebrate Earth Day because I don't worship the Earth. I'm glad we have an Earth. I'm glad God hasn't destroyed it yet. I know uh, when I was riding in, I see the rainbows in the sky. It was God's reminder that I did destroy it once. I will destroy it again the second time by fire. But, you know, the Lord, just like he knows this proverb that people are saying and how off base the proverb was, he also knows what people's mindset is about something like Earth Day and how off base they are as if Mother Earth gave birth to them or something. There is no Mother Earth. Didn't give birth to anybody. Uh, God, uh, God created mankind. God created everything that we see. But the Lord, he's even aware of the, just the foolish things that people think. And yet God loves people enough to address those foolish things. And here's a foolish proverb that people in Israel were, were saying for probably generations, and the Lord had said, time out, no more. This proverb will not be said among you anymore. The Lord takes issue with it. And there's no question that if you look at the proverb and say, what does it mean? Well, it means that 
you're going to, the proverb is basically saying, exactly as my parents were is exactly the way I will be. However the parents were is exactly how the kids will be. If the dads were set on alcoholism, the kids are going to be set on alcoholism. If the parents were set on idolatry, the kids will be set on idolatry. They're set on edge. They have the same thirst and a hunger for the flavor of whatever the sin was. And it's an automatic. Some people still kind of think this today. That's just the way it is in our family. Everybody's like that. There's no question that children do reflect their parents. They may look like them. They'll have some of the similar mannerisms at times, similar habits, both good ones and bad ones. Kids will inherit some of those things. And you've heard some of the the little cliches in our society. The apple doesn't far fall from the tree, right? Chip off the old block. Like mother, like daughter, like father, like son, all of these, you know, we, you probably said some of them yourself. And they actually have some legitimacy uh, in the sense that God uh, has made children to inherit their parents' DNA, uh, as well as aspects of their personalities, aspects of their preferences, some of their likes. Sometimes when you get older, you say, I'm acting like my parents, I cannot believe it, right? And you don't really like it sometimes. Because you thought you would never act that way. And it just, it's not even a bad thing or a good thing. It's just you found yourself doing something exactly that your parents did. So there is, there is an element of things that are passed down through generations. That's not what God's talking about. What God's talking about, if you were to say something like this, I'll say something that hopefully doesn't offend anybody. All Hatfields and McCoys are destined to fight like cats and dogs to get used to it. So if you went back, you know, back in the time of the Hatfields and McCoys, and you were to say that and say, this is the way y'all are. It's never going to change. So get used to it. You're going to be vengeful. You're going to be vengeful. Nothing can ever change it. That's the way it is. So don't even try. Israel, they held to this proverb. For some, it was an excuse. For others, it was hopeless. You see how it could be either? For some people, it's an excuse. Well, that's the way we are, so there's no way I can change this. So my dad was violent, therefore I'm violent. They were abusive, therefore I'm abusive. That's an excuse. For others, it's hopeless. They might, as a child, think there's no way I could ever be anything but my dad was in prison, his dad was in prison, this person did this, this person did that. It's just the way it's going to be in our family. And Lord would say it's not true. It doesn't have to be an excuse. It doesn't have to be hopeless. By the way, around the world, there are ethnic and regional proverbs. Of course, this proverb was very common in ancient Israel during this time. They're all around the world, even today, there are ethnic and regional proverbs uh, that are commonly used by the people in certain vicinities around the world. They often though not always, because this proverb in Israel is, is case in point, they often, though, reflect biblical truths even where there's not the Bible. Some of these proverbs around the world still reflect biblical truths, not always, but often they reflect biblical truths even where there is no Bible, and they have practical biblical kind of underpinnings, if you will, and yet there's no one there. Sometimes it's a Christian or there's any Bible. 
four possible reasons for this, potential reasons that I can think of. One, all people are created in the image of God. doesn't matter where you're from on planet Earth, all people are created in the image of God. Two, according to Romans, his invisible attributes go outside the rainbows, the clouds, the oceans, the diversity of flora, the diversity of animals, all of these things, his invisible attributes are clearly seen. The, ma the majesty of the heavens, all of these things. Number two. Number three, according to Scripture, men have a conscience given to them by God to know right and wrong. And Proverbs are almost always written with some notion of right and wrong. And number four, some Proverbs even ones that are uh, from all over the world, some of these Proverbs may have, in fact, and some definitely, I believe, descend back to people who were actually saved many, many, many years ago, and they've been passed down all the way to a point to people who aren't even saved now. So the original authors, if you will, may have been people, let's say someone was saved in northern India 1,500 years ago, and they coin a proverb that was based on biblical principles. By the time you get 1,500 years, there's no one saved in the village. They can't even remember that anyone ever there was saved, and yet those things are possible as well. Here's a few that I found uh, that I like from around the world. Here's a Chinese proverb. A bird does not sing because it has an answer. It sings because it has a song. It's another Chinese proverb. I love this one. A fool judges people by the presents they give him. Be careful for that one, right? Some of you have probably, we've all done that, haven't we? They must not like me that much because this, I know this costs $4.50. I've seen it somewhere, right? Here's an African proverb. The wise create proverbs for fools to learn, not to repeat. I like that. Here's an Irish proverb. This one's for my clan. You've got your own growing to do, no matter how tall your grandfather was. Here's a Nigerian proverb. And in the moment of crisis, the wise build bridges and the foolish build dams. In fact, there's each of those I could actually show you biblical principles under each of them. They're not scripture. But God puts in the heart of man what is right and what is wrong. And so when man chooses evil, he's willingly choosing evil. And so the Lord begins to go through this, and he says, Behold, all souls are mine. Now, does that mean that all souls are saved? Absolutely not. It means that God will weigh all souls in the scales of his own balance and determine, is there a conversion here or is there rejection here? And if there's rejection, he has the authority to say, to hell. He has the authority to say, you've received my son, you've repented, heaven. All souls will answer to the Lord, the great white throne judgment. In the book of Revelation, we know that all the small and the great will all stand before the Lord. And so the Lord begins to go through Ezekiel and say, look, no one is destined to be, if their father chose evil or their mother chose evil, no one is destined to go that way. They will individually choose the path they take. They will individually reject me or they will individually say yes to my grace and mercy. 
verses 5 through 9 here speaks of this just man. And the Lord kind of gives us uh, a really uh, solid view of what a just or righteous person looks like. Uh, and I'm not going to reread it all, but I'll uh, kind of um, give you an uh, aggregation of it. The characteristics of the righteous here in verses 5 through 9, it gives us a clear indication of the life God desires for his children. And here's the characteristics. Someone who practices no idolatry, no immorality. They pay attention and obey all the word of God. They're never oppressive or cruel. They're someone who keeps their word. They're never violent. They don't steal. They give sacrificially to those that are hungry. They give help and clothing to the poor. They never manipulate people. Matter of fact, you can go back through. I'm, I'm just kind of putting them in layman's terms and our words. Go back and read the text yourself. They can't be bribed. They can be trusted with money, assets, or responsibility. They're wise in judgment and discernment. And lastly, they've remained faithful and righteous in all their conduct. Verses 5 through 9, the Lord says, Here's a man who chooses to live lawful and righteous. And this is the characteristics of such a person. We certainly want to be that. Verses 10 through 13, this same man, God says, suppose he has a son, and his son does opposite of the father. And this happened in the kings of Israel. You would see in both cases, there were kings that were righteous, that had wicked sons, and there were kings that were uh, wicked that had righteous sons. So Israel themselves could look at their own history and see this. So the Lord says, suppose this man has a son in verse 14, he begets a son who sees all the sins his father's committed and does not consider but, and does not do likewise. Instead, he goes, I'm sorry, verse 10, sorry, uh, verses 10 through 13, uh, this is his son who chooses wickedness, his son who chooses to rob, shed blood, uh, eating on the mountains was, was where they had uh, everything from sexual immorality to idolatry and, and worshiping uh, different idols, different uh, uh, practices there. So th- this son chooses an opposite path of the father, and chooses to do evil, to live in rebellion to God. And the Lord says in verse 13, if he has done any of these abominations, he shall surely die. His blood shall be upon him, not anyone else, not, well, uh, all my relatives did this, I had bad influences in school, my neighbors were this way, I didn't have enough help. His blood will be on his own head. And then, in verses 14 through 18, or verses 14 through 17, you have what would be the grandson. So the Righteous grandfather has a son who chooses wickedness. Then that son has a son who goes back to righteousness and chooses what his grandfather did. And he shall surely live, the Lord says in verse 17. He shall not die for the iniquity of his father. His father chose wickedness. His grandfather chose righteousness. Uh, He's not not going to live and, and go to heaven because of his father or his grandfather. He has to personally choose to obey and surrender 
to the Lord. Each person makes their own individual decision. Very godly people can have a son and daughter that choose to reject. It happens. It's sad. We pray that they would come back, but each person makes their own decision. The very beginning, the first family, Adam and Eve had two sons. Right? Adam and Eve had sinned, but from all we can ascertain from Scripture, Adam and Eve, after sin, had chosen to follow the Lord, and they lived a righteous life. Not a perfect life, no more than any of you in this room. None of us are perfect. Adam and Eve weren't perfect, but they chose to live righteous. We know that they prayed to have a righteous son. They thought both their sons would be righteous, and said one was uh, rather wicked so much that he murdered his brother. Didn't choose to follow his parents. And these verses tell us that each individual, whether it was all the way back in the Garden of Eden, in their lifetime, people like to have, it probably started more with the excuse line of thinking, although like I said, it ends up hopeless for some people, because little children don't make up these excuses, they inherit them sometimes. But somebody comes along and says, you know, this is a great way to kind of, just kind of, well, I, I can't change because generations we've been this way. But when the truth is given, anyone can respond to it. Amen? We'll go into uh, the youth correctional facilities on Sunday night, this Sunday night. We'll meet kids there that probably have had a couple of generations that have chosen sin, and they come from really bad areas sometimes, and everyone around them uh, is, is doing evil, and, and yet God's still giving them the opportunity to say, I can pull you out of that. You don't have to live that way anymore. If the Son has set you free, you are free indeed, the Scripture says. Now let's look at verse 21. I'm sorry, let's take one more second on verse 19 through 20. Um, Actually, we're good there. Let's go to 21. Verse 21, but if a wicked man turns from all his sins which he has committed keeps all my statutes and does what is lawful and right, he shall surely live, he shall not die. Verse 21, the key here is the word turns. But if a wicked man turns. Now, if we didn't read the whole chapter, if you just read verses 1 through 20, and, and that's where the chapter ends, and you had no context of the rest of the Bible you didn't understand the 2020 rule in Scripture where you at least want to read 20 verses above, 20 verses below. Not all the time, but that's a general rule. There's not 20 below, above and below in this text, but you get the idea. It's a good idea to understand the context. But if you didn't know the rest of the Scriptures and you didn't know the rest of the context of this very chapter, you might read these verses 1 through 20 and come to the conclusion that we're saved by works. Make sense? If you just read verses 1 through 20 with no other biblical understanding and you didn't read the rest of chapter 18 and you just presented this to someone who didn't know anything, they would say, oh, I see, God saves people by did you do good or did you do bad? And that's what you might come to a conclusion. But that's not what the Lord is saying. It's not what the totality of Scripture says. It's not even what this chapter says. Thankfully, God gives us the rest of the story. Um, all the scriptures, the way the scriptures tell us, in verse 21 specifically tells us, that we're saved by turning. To repent is to turn and go what? The other 
direction. It's to do a 180, not a 360. A 360, you're right back doing what you were doing, right? A 180. You go the other direction. You turn to the Lord, and the Lord gives you the power to be transformed. It's the turning to Him that does the change. It's not that someone can pull themselves up by the bootstraps and say, that's it, I'm going to be righteous the rest of my life. People have tried that, and they seem to end up in the Betty Ford Clinic for the 21st time, right? Not to pick on Hollywood. Sometimes they're an easy target. God loves them too. But the point is, it's the turning to the Lord, it's the turning to the Lord that actually is where the power of salvation is released. It's repenting and turning to Him, committing to Christ, and then He helps us keep that commitment. And that's what produces good works and a righteous life. You don't make yourself be righteous. It's turning the Lord. The Lord says, now I will help you live righteously. The middle one of the generations there, the middle man, you have the father, or the grandfather, then the father, then the grandson, the middle one, he could have lived righteously if he turned to the Lord because the Lord would have helped him. He'll help you. He's not, he's not going to reject us in turning to him. But it's the Lord helping us to keep that commitment that produces good works and produces righteousness. Our righteous works are not, they're not the means of our salvation, they're the evidence of our salvation. Make sense? They're not the means of our salvation. They're the outgrowth of our salvation. It's not the other way around. It's not that I do a lot of good works, and once I've done a lot of good works, I'm so good at it, I can do it the rest of my life, therefore I'm saved. Real repentance, though, will bear real evidence. He says, if a wicked man, verse 21, turns from all his sins which he's committed and keeps all my statutes and does what is lawful, he shall surely live. Keeps the statutes. Keeps the commandments. Well, before, before I was saved, I couldn't keep any of God's commandments. I was only good at breaking them. I still break some of them now, but far less than before salvation. The Lord helps me keep Many times I look back and I was like, wow, I didn't even think about sinning at all for the last couple of hours. This is great. I didn't even think about sinning. I couldn't manufacture that, neither could you. The fact that you now are put, the Lord puts you in a stream of living water and you're flowing with him by the Holy Spirit is, is God's work. It's not ours. But we then set our mind on those things and he helps us to continue to grow. It's what we're talking about in Philippians 4 this Sunday. You, I promise if you set your mind on verses 4 through 9, you keep setting your mind on it, it'll transform our lives. We'll look back a year from now and we'll say, wow, I saw more people saved. I saw more lives changed. Was the Holy Spirit not there before? Of course he was there before. But he was always doing the work, but now we're becoming even more diligent and pressing in to the Lord and growing. The unsaved person can't do that. They can't produce it. After a while, they'll give up. It's like banging their head into a wall. They get tired of it, and they go back to sin. The scriptures talk about a dog returning to his own vomit. But real repentance is going to give evidence. 
you're taking notes on uh, this section, this is um, proof of repentance. We have proof of repentance. Matthew 3.8 and Luke 3.8, they're the same, path, uh, both uh, are, uh, verses, are chapters 3, verse 8, therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance. Jesus said that. He said, bear fruits worthy of repentance. In other words, repentance, if it's genuine, is going to bear fruit. It's going to have a new and changed life. You know first, you know 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. You can't be saved and have no change. God's power is too great to leave people the way they once were. There's nobody that says, yeah, I, I got saved and... Uh, and I, I still can't stop, just uh, I still get drunk every night. Can't stop myself. Well, then the Holy Spirit's not there. You need to go back, get on your knees, and really repent. Because if the Lord has come in, He does change and transform a life. Now, you might struggle against things. You might say, hey, I'm, man, I have this desire, and it's so strong, and I don't want to do it. And you'll have other believers put an arm around you and pray with you. That's a different matter. God will help you break through strongholds, but you will not just kind of caval- in a cavalier way just continue to do what you used to do before and say, well, but I'm saved. How do you know? Well, I went to the Billy Graham crusade. Nowhere in Scripture does it say, nowhere in Scripture does it say, examine yourself and see if you said a sinner's prayer. You won't find it. It says, examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. By what? Your character. Your life, does it, does it mirror the life of Christ? I didn't say uh, that we would be just like him, but the fact that we would then begin to walk in his footsteps. Look, look at verses, uh, the latter half of verse 21 and all of verse 22. If you're taking notes, this would be under the promise of the Lord. Promise of the Lord. The Lord gives us a promise here. Uh, if he keeps all my statutes and does what is lawful and right, he shall surely live, he shall not die. None of the transgressions which he's committed shall be remembered against him because of the righteousness which he has done. He shall live. What a great promise. God promises, promises life. If we really have turned, there's proof of repentance. The Lord promises that we'll never die. Now, we know that we're all going to die physically, so we know what is the Lord talking about here eternal life. Because even David, Moses, Paul, they all died physically. They all were buried. We're going to die. But we're not going to die spiritually. Our soul and our spirit will live forever with the Lord. Paul said to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. But I love this promise. Verse 22. None of the transgressions she has committed shall be remembered. You know, it's true. The Lord says he casts our sins as far as the east is from the west. That just keeps on going, doesn't it? Not a circle. Just keeps on going. He doesn't remember them anymore. We remember them, don't we? Yeah, sometimes things we did many years ago, which we know God's forgiven us, they still can bother us. But God is not bothered anymore by those things. He's cast them as far as the east is from the west. He doesn't remember them. None of the past will ever harm the believer when they stand before Christ 
at the judgment seat of Christ. If you're saved, that's where you'll stand. You, don't, you won't go to the great white throne judgment. The great white throne judgment is reserved for the lost, for those that have rejected God, rejected Jesus Christ. The judgment seat of Christ is for all believers. Every believer will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. But we won't be found guilty. We will get rewards based on how we had lived faithfully, and some will have been more faithful than others. But none of our past sins will be brought up against us. Those were all covered by the blood of the Lamb. But any of the things in the past, you know, Judah, you know the name Judah? He really was, it's not just a tribe, he really was one of Jacob's sons. And um, he had committed adultery. Before him and his brothers bowed down to Joseph, Judah wasn't such a good guy. Neither was Simeon. Neither was Levi. Good night. The Levites come from Levi. Levi was not a good guy before the end of his life when he finally surrendered himself to the Lord. But Judah had committed adultery. Paul was a murderer and a persecutor of Christians. You know, if it, if it really kind of burdens you when you see these uh, people murdering and imprisoning Christians around the world, Paul used to do that stuff. He said he was a violent and insolent man. He said of sinners he was chief, and he really believed it. He thought he was the worst of the worst. Rahab was a harlot, and yet we see the bloodline of Christ, don't we? None of those things are remembered. Murder, harlotry, adultery, all of these things. Salvation Army officer John Allen said, I deserve to be damned in hell, but God interfered. He interfered with each of us if we're saved, didn't he? Because I know before I came to Christ that God had to have interfered because I wasn't looking for God. He said, you did not seek me, I sought you. William McComb wrote this poem. He said, chief of sinners though I be, Jesus shed his blood for me, died that I might live on high, lives that I might never die. We'll die physically but will be eternally in the presence of the Lord. We'll never have that second death, which is to be cast into the lake of fire. That's the second death, where the worm doesn't die. The thirst will never be quenched. I know a lot of pastors don't preach on hell anymore in America, but it still exists. And we better preach on it more in the days in which we live in, not less. Do you think the Lord is shrinking back here? Reread the text on your own. Because I'm kind of reading kind of too fast tonight because I know it's Wednesday night and I want to get through it so I can get into the study part of it. But read it slowly and digest it. God holds nothing back here in both the truth of judgment to come but also in His grace. It's equal in vengeance and it's equal in mercy. My pastor, one of my mentors used to say, you can't know how good the good news is until you first know how bad the bad news is. And it's true. Nobody's going to take uh, chemotherapy unless they really think they have cancer because it'll rock you. you know, I had a sister, my, my, you know, my brother, we had a sister that died of cancer and chemo and uh, radiation. You know, I saw her you know, wither up at the age, and, and more of the chemo and the radiation probably uh, took the toll faster than even the cancer, even though both were, uh, were horrific. But nobody's going to take something like that unless they know that it's necessary. Well, it's necessary once you realize that hell is forever that you surrender to the Lord because the middle son here, if he could have got a glimpse of where he would spend eternity, might would think differently. 
that the Lord wants to transform. Paul wrote in Colossians 2.14, this promise again that we're talking of here, that none of our sins will be remembered. Paul said, having right, wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. The only way the promise of the Lord can be assured to us is that Jesus secured the victory there in Calvary. Amen? Now let's look at the pleasure of the Lord. We know the promise of the Lord, that, that anyone that turns and repents, God will in no wise cast out. Amen? Jesus said, all that come to me. He's not going to turn anyone away. What is the Lord's pleasure? Well, it's interesting. The Lord doesn't say, this is my pleasure, but he says a redundant, he asks a redundant question to Ezekiel. He says, do I have any pleasure at all that the wicked should die? And then he answers that redundant question in case Ezekiel doesn't know the answer. In verse 32, drop down to the very bottom there, he says, for I have no pleasure in the death of one who dies. Now, he's not talking about physical death because everybody dies of physical death. We've already discussed that. So who is he talking about? God says he takes no pleasure into the one who is cast eternally into hell. Do I have any pleasure at all the wicked should die? And not, and not that he should turn, verse 23, from his ways and live. The Lord's desire is that every person would turn to him. That there would be no middle son or third generation that didn't choose him, but that all generations would choose salvation. We know without question what does please the Lord. He says it in verse 32, and we know what he desires and what his pleasure is in the New Testament. Listen to a couple of these verses. We actually covered this verse a couple of weeks ago. We didn't really go deep on it then, but... Luke 12, 32, remember this verse, do not fear little flock. I love that verse. But the rest of the verse actually tells you what God's pleasure is. For it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. You know what's God's pleasure? To give people heaven. You'll have people all the time. I've said it, I haven't said it in a while, but I used to have a coworker back when I was still in the business world. I'd come in on Mondays. He'd say, did you send anyone to hell this weekend? because I was a bivocational pastor for six years, and we had a good relationship, and I would explain to him, again, I cannot send anyone to hell. They're already on their way there. I can tell them how not to go there. Right? Because God has a sign that says heaven, and Satan has a sign that says heaven. Did you notice I didn't say hell? Satan's sign doesn't say hell. That wouldn't be tricky at all. Satan's sign says heaven, and God's sign says heaven. But God's sign, and where it says heaven, says repent, turn Lord Jesus Christ, ask him to be your Lord and Savior, turn from your sins, and walk in righteousness. Satan's sign says to hell, do whatever you want. You can even say a sinner's prayer if you need to, but do anything you want at all, and you'll be fine. So they both say the same thing, at least on the roadside aspect of it. The fine print's quite different isn't it? On both. But we know what God's pleasure is. His, his pleasure is that nobody would choose Satan's lies 
instead follow Jesus Christ because the Father, Jesus, Jesus emphasizes whose pleasure is. He says it's the Father's pleasure to give you the kingdom of God. Luke 15, 10, Jesus says, Likewise, I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels over one sinner that repents. One. You know, the world will not notice if one person gets saved tonight somewhere on planet Earth. As a matter of fact, more than one person will get saved tonight. Probably Calvary, Fort Lauderdale, where I got saved, probably 25 people will get saved tonight. It was always an amazing thing. Someday I hope we see that here. I believe if we stay faithful, Lord, we can see it. We can see a day when we will see multiple people saved in every service. I believe that with all my heart. But even if we didn't, one soul matters. And I see people in this, I, I see four or five people in here that I've seen you come to Christ since you came here. That one soul matters. That all of heaven rejoices over that. Why? Because it's the Father's pleasure that people would come to know Him. They would turn from sin, that they would repent, that they would live. He wants to give everlasting life. And then we have these last verses, verses 24 through 32, if you're taking notes. The pleading of the Lord. We looked at the promise of the Lord, the pleasure of the Lord. This is the pleading of the Lord. It's amazing that God pleads with men he created. Isn't it? It blows me away. It blows me away that Jesus left the throne of heaven to be spit upon, to have a crown of thorns. You ever seen the thorns? We, we, were, uh, we were down in Florida. Um, there was a thorn tree, and the thorns were this long. And I was just, just kind of poking my thing. Those things were sharp, and they were strong as could be. And those are the kind they have uh, in Israel as well that they just pierced on him. Uh, and so not only are you amazed that Jesus would leave heaven to die, but God is pleading with humanity, even though he could write in the sky, he could do impressive things, he could do all those things, but it has to be an act of the will. So the Lord speaks to the heart as opposed to just, well, I just want a fire escape thing. I want to do whatever I want. It has to be a true yielding. It has to be a real surrender and a submission but the Lord pleads that, that men and women would humble themselves and they would turn and live. Ezekiel 36 uh, reiterates this as well, where, G, uh, where the Lord says here in verse 31, cast away from you all the transgressions, get yourselves a new heart, for why should you die? In the 36th chapter, when we get to chapter 36, this is said again, 36 verse 26, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and will give you a heart of flesh, a soft heart. We have hard hearts before Christ. The Lord will give us a soft heart. But the Lord pleads, you say your, my way is not fair. I say your way is not fair. He speaks of a couple other things here too. We'll come back to the pleading in just a second. But there's two other things that, that pop out in this text. One, these are two things that Christians have been debating forever. One is eternal security. Once you get saved, are you always saved, or can you lose your salvation? Because this passage speaks to that, or at least people would, would, would 
think it's speaking directly to that. Um, and then the second, I'll come back to that point. The second is, can we choose God or uh, do we have no say in the matter whatsoever? You know, if you, uh, I have pastor friends that uh, would disagree with me on that they, they subscribe to Calvinist theology and they believe uh, that, you know, we didn't have any part in choosing salvation. It's only God who does choose us. Now, I believe 100% Pastor Chuck is, was, was uh, known for preaching this way back in the 70s that, uh, you know, he believes in sovereign grace and he believes in free will. And so do I. I believe in sovereign grace, and I believe in free will. I believe that God has sovereignly chosen us before time, and I believe he also has given every single person free will. You say, well, those two, they seem incongruent. Yeah, well, how can Jesus be 100% man and 100% God? If anyone can explain that on planet Earth, I'm waiting to hear it. Because nobody can. You have to be 50-50. You can't be 100-100. That's 200%. You can't be a 200% anything. But Jesus is 100% man, 100% God, and God gives 100% free will to all people, not willing that any should perish, and he also sovereignly chooses. Well, I don't think that those two mix. Well, that's why we are so puny brain humans. We We can't wrap our minds around things like that. We just accept what the Lord says. We'll look at eternal security first. So the Lord says, when a righteous man turns away from his, verse 24, turns away from his righteousness and commits iniquity and does according to the abomination of the righteous, uh, it goes on to say, because of them he shall die. Now he's not talking about the body, so again, this man is not going to be spending eternity in heaven. That's not a good, that's not a good picture there. The question is, is, has there been a genuine conversion? Any man being Christ, he is a new creation. Old things are passed away. Everything's become new. The question is, if somebody turns away and says, man, I remember when they were walking with the Lord. They were winning people to Christ. They were on fire for the Lord. What are they doing now? I, for 40 years now, they say they're an atheist. Good chance they never really had a conversion. They had an experience. But they've turned back to sin, Matthew 7, verses 22 and 23. Now, I love the context in Matthew 7 because Jesus makes it clear that who he's talking about here are people that are religious. Verse 22, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. They had a form of righteousness. They had some times in their life that, that they had done well. But Jesus said, I never knew you. Never knew you. Never knew means he never knew you. That's deep teaching right there. John chapter 6, verse 54, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I'll raise him off the land. Has, possesses it. Now, we don't literally eat Jesus' flesh and blood. How do we eat the flesh and blood of Christ? We enter into salvation. We believe on his name 
for salvation. We believe in his shed blood. We believe in his body. It's why we take the Lord's Supper in remembrance. And we have spiritually taken him into our life, into our hearts. We have eternal life. John says that more than once uh, in the book of John. Ephesians 4.30, not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you've been sealed until the day of redemption. Sealed by the Lord. Sealed by Christ. I don't, I don't get in debates with people. To think, you know, I, I know that there's really godly believers that believe you can lose your salvation. Some of them are, are, some of, are, are wonderful saints. Very, very godly people. Um, my focus is that we just continue. It's like Pastor Chuck talked about this and many times if you listen to his teaching. You know, the Lord is never, you really, the reason you can't lose your salvation is in the sense that now you can throw it away, but that would only prove you never had it in the first place. Make sense? If you throw it away, you, 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 you couldn't possibly believe what you have. If I gave any of you, and you knew for a fact, you knew for a fact what I gave you was a gold brick like the one they just found stolen down in Florida. It was worth 457000 or whatever it was. If you knew it was real gold, I doubt many of you would say, I think it's fool's gold. I'm going to throw it away. No, you would hold on to that thing. Well, the Lord will never throw us out of his hands, but if we're dumb enough to say, I don't like it here anymore, it was proof we never really were in him because we never understood the value of what he had given us. So he'll never kick us out. Uh, I kind of equate it to you know, you can, um, it, you can misplace your keys. Anyone ever done that or just me? You can misplace your keys, and you know they're in the house. You know they're in the house because you haven't left the house because a minute ago you had them. You haven't gone anywhere. You know they're in the house. That's quite a different thing than going and chucking them in the Atlantic Ocean. If you misplace your keys in the house, you're going to find them. So there's days that when you're saved, you kind of get off track. And God has to reorient your steps until you find where the keys are at. That's a different thing than that chucking them into the ocean and saying, I'm going to be an atheist from now on. That's someone that's never really been saved in the first place. You have a parachute, you're going to keep it. You're not going to throw it out. We have a parachute of salvation. But then there's the other aspect, not only eternal security here, but do we have any opportunity it's, are some people destined, well, they, God has destined them for hell? I mean, uh, people that are hardcore on the tulip, uh, total depravity, and each of these things. Uh, well, some people were created, there's, there's, there's Christians, and I, and I love them, there's Christians that believe some people were created for hell. I, I don't believe that that's what the Lord's saying here. I believe he's pretty clear when he says, do I take any pleasure that we're going to die and not that they should turn? If the Lord's, if they wouldn't have the opportunity to turn, this would be a disingenuous statement. But it's not a disingenuous statement. The Lord is saying, anyone willing to turn, I will receive. Because he even says in verse 32 uh, or verse 31, why should you die? Who do you think he's talking to? Everyone in the household of Israel will all receive him? No. Some will still reject and be carried away in captivity. Some will be slaughtered when Babylon comes against Jerusalem. So he's talking to everybody, and he says, why should you die? Now, if he's chosen for them to go to hell, that's a disingenuous statement. But the Lord's not, he's not like us. He doesn't make disingenuous statements. All his statements are true. So it's a true statement. He's saying, why should you die? 
turn and live, verse 32, turn and live. Who is he speaking to? Everybody, every single person. Everyone has the opportunity. You know, the Lord reiterates this throughout the scriptures. 1 Timothy 2, 4. He desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of truth. All men means who? All men. Well, it didn't say women. Well, it's conclusive. 2 Peter 3, 9. The Lord is long-suffering towards, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The Lord pleads in the New Testament, there through Peter, there through Paul, here through the Old Testament, as he speaks to Ezekiel, he's not willing that any should perish. And he's not going to cast anyone out as long as we're willing to continue to abide. What did Jesus say? Abide in me. What did Paul say when they were in the ship that was going to be wrecked? He said, do not get out of this ship. I think I'll get on a life raft and get to the shore. Paul said, that won't work. Do not get out of this ship. One thing I know for certain, I will never lose my salvation because I'm not getting out of the ship. How about you? I'm in the ship. We're in the ark. The ark was a picture of Christ. The ark and the, nobody was dumb enough. Noah's sons weren't even dumb enough to get out of the ark. They did some dumb things after they got out of the ark. But nobody was diving out of the ark because it was certain death. You don't leave the safety of Jesus Christ. Amen? He won't cast us out. We can be secure that if we say, Lord, help me keep that which I've committed against that day, the final day, and then we can also be assured that the Lord is pleading with a lost and dying world. And if he's pleading with a lost and dying world as we come to a close, Christian, shouldn't we be? It makes us take an assessment When's the last time we've pleaded with someone to come to Christ? We need to be, have our hearts softened, even as believers, to see the world the way the Lord does. Amen? Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for this time this evening in your word. We ask, Lord, that uh, those things that we've read and heard from you, that they would go deeper. Lord, we ask that you'd forgive us, that we don't have sometimes this same heart of compassion for those that are lost that we see in your own words. We thank you, Lord, that uh, you cast our sins as far as the east is from the west. We thank you, Lord, that uh, we're not condemned because of what our ancestors may have done, what our grandparents may have done, or what someone didn't do. But Lord, you come to each of us, you knocked on each of our hearts individually, and Lord, you gave us the opportunity to receive the living water of salvation purchased by your own blood. Jesus, we just thank you that you remind us to reflect your heart, to reach out to those that don't know you, to continue, Lord, to pray and faithfully know that, uh, Lord, that nobody is beyond your reach. And we thank you for this time this evening. Lord, use us the rest of this week. Help us to continue to walk in the things that we looked at on Sunday in Philippians 4. We pray that you would use these things now to further deepen our understanding of your grace. And Lord, on Friday night as we gather uh, at the home fellowships, we pray, Lord, that you would just take us even deeper still. Lord, not that we would have depth of knowledge, but depth of surrender, depth of love. And Lord, just that the Holy Spirit would flow from our lives. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.